Good morning and welcome to NTD. I'm Chris Beers filling in for Kagan Hogan. Good morning. Also from me here, today's top stories. The U.S. sends a Christmas Day message to Iran-backed terrorists in the Middle East. More in airstrikes ordered by President Biden targeting the Hezbollah brigades in Iraq. Turkey steps up airstrikes against Kurdish groups in Syria and Iraq after the death of 12 of its troops. More on the bombing of U.S. allies instrumental in removing ISIS from the region. New York City police arrest pro-Palestinian protesters for scuffling with NYPD officers. And Christmas carolers in Lower Manhattan face disruption from a free Palestine convoy. Police send out units to the homes of two House Republicans on Christmas Day, a response to fake emergency calls to the lawmakers' private addresses. From House censures and expulsions to inner party divisions on both sides of the aisle, Melina Weisskopf recaps this historic year in Congress and looks ahead at what's coming in 2024. Billionaire Elon Musk is facing a lawsuit. It involves the alleged withholding of employee bonuses at his company, X. We find out the details with the host of NTD Business. Tempting French holiday desserts shaped like iconic buildings in Paris. See the mouth-watering creations made by French chefs. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, December 26th, and we head to today's top news. President Biden ordered airstrikes against Iran-backed terrorist groups in Iraq last night. The White House says it was in retaliation to a drone attack on a U.S. base. The Pentagon says three U.S. service members were injured. One is in critical condition. U.S. Central Command says it targeted three sites used by Kataib, Hezbollah and affiliated terrorist groups. The terrorist organization is also known as the Hezbollah Brigades. It fought against coalition forces in the Iraq war. The U.S. says it struck back less than 13 hours after the attack on the base in northern Iraq. CENTCOM says the precision strikes likely killed a number of terrorists. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says the strikes were ordered in response to a series of attacks against the U.S. in both Syria and Iraq. Austin said while the U.S. does not seek to escalate conflict in the region, it will not hesitate to take action to protect its troops and interests. Austin called the airstrikes necessary and proportionate. And joining us now for some Israel updates is Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, a spokesman for the IDF. Good morning, Lieutenant Colonel. It's good to have you back. First, I want to ask you about some updates on the extensive tunnel networks you've been in and, of course, the bodies that you have found. Do you know what happened to them now? Good morning, Evelyn. Indeed, our operations continue. We are continuing uh, to, I would say, scrape back stage by stage, layer by layer, Hamas's extensive terror tunnel network. Um, we found over the, and revealed to the public over the last few days several of the, their major tunnel networks. The last was in the Jabalia camp, um, a extensive tunnel network with elaborate um, uh, uh, rooms and uh, uh, energy and water and 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 sewage, uh, several rooms. We found these, this indeed is the place where we found the bodies of um, abducted Israelis, um, where they were being held by uh, by Hamas terrorists. Uh, it just goes to show, though, that the effort that Hamas has gone to to build this network or networks throughout the Gaza Strip, and we we are determined and continue to operate against them in order to achieve our goal of dismantling Hamas and making sure. They never have the power again to, to, to attack yeah. Israel and conduct, conduct these merciless attacks against our people. And have you, uh, do you have any theories already about what happened to those five dead hostages? How did they die or um, did they succumb to their injuries? Were they killed there? Uh, well, of course, uh, we know uh, a little about what happened and what transpired uh, about some of the victims. Uh, of course, the question is not how they were killed, is why were they there? And the, the reason is they are there, they were there is because Hamas decided to abduct them on the 7th of October and hold them hostage 
uh, underneath the ground in this um, network of tunnels. Um, our role is to bring home the hostages, every last one of them, and we will continue our operations. Right. And we continue to reveal exactly how Hamas has, has utilized their power to, to build these tunnels, to build their network, to, to conduct these acts of terrorism against us. Right, and we have seen quite a bit of footage of these extensive tunnels coming out. Do you, would you say that you've been able to take over most of the Hamas tunnels, net, tu uh, tunnel networks by now? Um, I'd be very cautious in determining how much, but we are revealing more and more. As each day that goes by, we have, have over 1,500 access piers and tunnels that we've destroyed and dismantled. It's hundreds and hundreds of kilometers of tunnels that they've built. Uh, and dismantling them is a very extensive challenge because they're booby-trapped. They are obviously concealed from sight. Um, they have, um, some of them are, they are operating within those tunnels. Um, in Jabalia, where, when we were operating, we noticed several times terrorists that were trying to gain or regain access to the tunnel system as we were operating our operations beneath ground. So it's, um, it, it's moving forward. I think, Evelyn, the most important thing is that we can continue our operations to find the hostages on one hand, but also dismantle this huge network. It is the most expensive and expansive construction project ever to exist in the Gaza Strip, all at the expense of the people of Gaza, not for the benefit of the people of Gaza. So it needs to be dismantled. It needs to be taken away. Hamas can never have this power again, and we won't let them. That is right. I, I am wondering, though, with um, with Hamas infrastructure increasingly being destroyed or dismantled, are you pushing Hamas militants maybe toward those safe areas and refugee camps where the civilians are now, where they're supposed to have safety? How will this be handled as war goes on um, with this being such a high risk to civilians? So we know for a fact that Hamas from the outset has been intentionally putting civilians in harm's way. We, on the other hand, have been trying to get people out of harm's way. Of course, when they're launching rockets, launching attacks, conducting battle from within and behind, and there are some gruesome stories that I've been hearing from the forces on the ground that how Hamas have been sending civilians forward uh, uh, to be a buffer between us and their activists, their terrorists. Um, and this is a huge challenge that we are facing on the battleground. Of course, we will continue to operate. We will continue to achieve our goals within the laws of the armed conflict um, in order to distinguish between civilians and Hamas terrorists. That is our obligation as a professional military. We will continue to do so. Um, you know, it, I think that it's most important that we demand uh, decency from Hamas. I know it's, very, it's a very uh, questionable demand because we can't really expect them to do so. But they are responsible for the war to begin with. They're responsible for each and every civilian casualty that is caused on the battleground, precisely because how they conduct their operations. Right. And um, so is that, am I understanding correctly, are you seeing Hamas moving with the civilians to those safe zones? We've seen Hamas send civilians forward and while they are hiding behind them. Hmm. Uh, we've seen this. We've had reports from the forces on the ground. Uh, speaking to the commanders, this is what I'm hearing on several instances of this uh, battle, of this war, as it transpires, as it moves on. We've seen them launch rockets from the from the safe zones. We've seen them launch rockets from schools. They've hidden their mosques, hidden in their mosques, in the um, kindergartens, in club uh, scout clubhouses. Um, they have no regard for human life, Israeli or Palestinian. This is the challenge we face. All right, thank you so much for breaking this down. Lieutenant Colonel Peter Lerner, thanks for your time this morning. Good morning, Evelyn. And Iran says an Israeli airstrike in Syria yesterday killed one of its high-ranking generals. Iranian state TV interrupted its regular news broadcast to announce the death of Razi Mousavi. Iranian officials vowed revenge for his death. Israel has carried out attacks against Iran-linked targets in Syria for years. Iran's influence in Syria has grown since it backed the Assad regime in a civil war that erupted in 2011. The IDF did not comment directly on the matter, but said its role is to guard and protect Israel's security interests. Israel's military released footage of a hostage's vehicle found in Gaza near the Indonesian hospital. The video shows a white Toyota Corolla parked in a nearby shed. 
The soldier showing the car says it has an Israeli license plate and was owned by a kidnapped, kidnapped Israeli. He shows bloodstains and a Toyota truck he says was used in the October 7th terrorist attack with vests and combat equipment inside. Israel's military says the car was owned by one of the three hostages mistakenly killed by IDF soldiers. The IDF says the hospital hid Hamas infrastructure and is yet more evidence that Hamas uses hospitals in Gaza for terrorism. Several pro-Palestinian demonstrators were arrested in New York City last night after clashing with police. An NYPD spokesperson says several individuals were taken into custody Monday and that one officer sustained minor injuries. Eyewitness video shows protesters in Manhattan pushing police officers during their calls for a ceasefire in, Israel, in the Israel-Hamas war. Christmas carolers in Lower Manhattan also reported some harassment. Protesters driving around Washington Square Park honking horns and playing loud music. The carolers also say demonstrators opposed them by gathering on the sidewalk chanting loudly. One caroler says although it was disruptive, it only motivated the group to sing louder. He says Christmas is about turning the negative into a positive. The pro-Palestinian caravan made multiple stops in the tri-state area over the weekend. One Instagram post from a supporter was captioned, no celebration to liberation. And we're now learning that two members of the Harvard Corporation, the school's governing body, met with current and former faculty members last week. The group reportedly talked about the continued fallout from its response to the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel. Some faculty are calling for resignations or apologies from board members. Harvard is facing other pressures too, including plagiarism allegations against the university's president, Claudine Gay. A report by the New York Times says two board members were directly told they had to do more to address the ongoing, quote, maelstrom consuming the campus. One of the faculty members, the former dean of Harvard Medical School, said he told board members that the public criticism is directed specifically at them. A U.S. House committee investigating anti-Semitism at Harvard says it will also look into the plagiarism allegations. When we come back, a winter storm is moving swiftly through the Midwest and plains, bringing heavy snow, freezing rain, and powerful winds. Travel conditions will be hazardous this busy holiday week. We have more on the weather. From house censures and expulsions to inter-party divisions on both sides of the aisle, Melina Weiskab recaps this historic year in Congress and looks ahead at what's coming in 2024. Welcome back. A powerful winter storm is sweeping across the plains and the upper Midwest, bringing heavy snow, freezing rain and strong winds. Blizzard conditions with gusts up to 75 miles per hour are expected today. It may cause tree and power line damage along with whiteout conditions that make travel extremely difficult. Here's a look at how Christmas weather is impacting travel. A powerful storm pummeling parts of the plains and upper Midwest. More than 725,000 people across South Dakota, parts of Colorado and Nebraska under a blizzard warning Monday. Omaha could see between 5 to 11 inches of snow by Tuesday. The weather crippling Christmas travel. The slick and dangerous conditions causing multiple semis to jackknife on Interstate 80, forcing officials to close eastbound lanes between Grand Island and Lincoln. The Nebraska Department of Transportation tweeting a warning to drivers not to travel. This same system causing dense fog in Chicago and snarling travel plans. Just a lot of disappointment, man. Posted left yesterday. I'm just trying to get to my family in Texas. The low visibility causing dozens of flights to be canceled or delayed at Chicago's Midway Airport. It's terrible. I'm just, I'm just keep trying to keep a smile, keep a positive outlook to keep from crying. Midway is the fourth busiest hub for Southwest Airlines. The weather causing at least 58 flights to be canceled. A spokesperson for the airline saying they have all hands on deck to find alternative flights for passengers. The storm will significantly impact travel throughout the region and is expected to persist throughout the day.
Parts of Nebraska, South Dakota, Kansas, Colorado and Wyoming are under blizzard warnings. Residents are advised to avoid travel if possible and to be prepared with survival kits in case of stranding. So please stay safe out there if you're driving. We're switching gears. Two DOP lawmakers say they were swatted yesterday on Christmas. Swatting is when police or a SWAT team are sent out to respond to a fake emergency call. Representatives Brandon Williams and Marjorie Taylor Greene both posted about the false alarms on X. Williams thanked local police for contacting him before arriving. The congressman says officers left with homemade cookies and spiced nuts and took the opportunity to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. Williams says Capitol and local police are both investigating. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene says it's the eighth time she's been targeted by fake callers. Local police say the call was received through a suicide prevention line. A man claimed he shot his girlfriend and was threatening to kill himself. Authorities on the way turned around after confirming with Green's security team that the claim was false. Green thanked her local police on X, saying they shouldn't have to deal with this. Swatting calls on Green's home were also reported in August last year. At least one caller said they were upset with Green's stance on transgender issues. The FBI is working with Colorado law enforcement to investigate a series of threatening social media posts against Supreme Court justices in the state. The posts came after justices ruled last week to remove Trump from the state's 2024 primary ballot. The FBI stated it's aware of the situation and will investigate any threat or use of violence. The names of the four Colorado Supreme Court justices who ruled to disqualify Trump have appeared on social media. Authorities say some of the posts are, quote, incendiary. Some threatened to reveal the judge's personal information. This year was a historic one for Congress. From the ouster of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to Vice President Kamala Harris, setting a new record for tie-breaking in the thinly divided Senate. And next year already is setting up to be even bumpier with many high-priority items kicked down the road. Here's NTD's congressional correspondent Melina Wisecup with hits and misses from this year and what lawmakers still have to tackle in the year ahead. Back to January of 2023, an embattled Kevin McCarthy takes the gavel. He went through 15 rounds of voting on the House floor only to resign from Congress now after he was ousted from his speakership post. Well, I'll be departing the House at the end of this year. Speaker Mike Johnson now dealing with an even slimmer majority after Republicans kicked out one of their own. This is bullying. That slim majority has proven crippling for Republicans who have yet to pass their annual spending bills. Democrats, meanwhile, sticking together on most issues, with one exception being how to handle the Israel-Hamas war. Y'all, the United Nations General Assembly supports a ceasefire. 22 Democrats voting against one of their own, Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, censuring her over her criticism of Israel. And many find it hard to forget a few head-turning acts from individual lawmakers, like Congressman Jamal Bowman sounding the fire alarm, and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's two episodes of freezing mid-sentence. Congress passed 27 bills that became law this year, including ending the COVID-19 pandemic emergency, declassifying information on the origin of COVID, and overturning a D.C. crime law that would ease consequences for violent criminals. All areas where Republicans and Democrats were unified in 2023. Plus a debt ceiling deal negotiated by former Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the White House, which is now proving difficult for lawmakers to stick to. Most American people won't even miss if the government to shut down temporarily. The issue at the forefront of 2024's agenda, plus finding a solution to mobilize Israel aid, Ukraine aid, and solutions on the southern border. We'll also likely see an official vote on impeaching DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and an impeachment vote of President Biden. These are topics that become even more difficult to navigate during the election year of 2024. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And we're moving on to an Israel update. We bring you the spokesman for the Israeli government, Avi Hyman, to understand what happened to the five hostages the IDF found dead in Gaza. Thank you so much for your time today, Avi. Do we have any updates about how these, about how these hostages were killed? Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Unfortunately not. We don't have information other than the fact that 
Hamas will have killed those hostages. They were taken alive brutally from their homes and villages against all notions of international humanitarian law. And they were taken to those underground terror dungeons held by monsters with masks and machine guns. And uh, thankfully, in a sense, we managed to uh, retrieve their bodies. We obviously would have much rather liked to have uh, freed them uh, as, as living um, as, as living and well. But uh, this is the brutal terrorist organization that we're up against that perpetrated the 7th of October massacre. Um, and that's why we need to put an end to Hamas and free all of the hostages before it's too late. And Avi, what's the effect of this sort of incident on the Israel, Israeli public's yet support for this war? So the Israeli public has never been more unified on anything to my knowledge, as a, as a uh, student of history, as someone who, who's lived in Israel for a very long time. I've never seen this type of unity in Israel. And I'll tell you, it's two things. It's that we start our day every single day listening to those names, the names of the soldiers that we've lost fighting that just fight, that just war in Gaza. Because we know that, that, that this war needs to continue. This war needs to continue until the total victory until Hamas is dismantled in Gaza, until we free Gaza from Hamas, and until we bring home all of the hostages. So we understand the price that we're paying daily, and it's every type of Israeli. It's right-wing, it's left-wing, it's religious, it's secular. Everyone is running under the banner together because we understand this is an existential threat. We cannot allow an ISIS-like terror entity um, to continue operating on our southern border and to do exactly what they say they want to do, which is to perpetrate the, uh, the October 7th massacre again and again and again. For us, never again is now. This was the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust, and we cannot allow it to happen again. So we will, we will destroy Hamas, and we will bring peace to Israel. And with that, what can be done to minimize hostage deaths going forward in the war? Unfortunately, those hostages were taken by Hamas, that brutal terrorist organization. They are holding them in convention with, uh, against all international notion of international law. Their uh, fates are in the hands of Hamas. Now, we've said from the beginning that if so much of a hair on their body is harmed, Hamas will pay a price. And they are paying a price, and they will continue to pay a price. But my prime minister has made it clear that anyone who harms those, uh, those hostages will be hunted down and will be brought to justice. We must ensure that Israelis cannot just be, we, we, we can't allow these terrorists to just plow through our borders and take hostages, men, women, children. There's still a baby who's nine months old, is now 11 months old. That baby can't have his first birthday in Gaza. This is unacceptable. We call on the international community to shout from the rafters, to make it clear that this cannot go on. Those, those hostages must be freed without any preconditions. There is no reason to hold these people other than the fact that Hamas is trying to kill and get away with it. That's why they're holding those hostages. Now let's switch gears. Egypt has reportedly proposed a deal for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. What do we know about this so far? I can tell you that 110 uh, Israeli hostages uh, were freed in the last agreement. Um, and the reason that we got to that stage was because of the massive military and diplomatic pressure that we applied on Hamas. Hamas understands one thing, and that's force. And we applied that force on Hamas to the extent that they were begging for a breather. And that's how we got those uh, hostages freed. So we're continuing on with our, with our mission to destroy Hamas. And if at some point they say, you know, they need a break, and it will only be through through that type of force, then we'll, uh, we're, we're willing to hear, um, you know, what's on the table, if that means freeing our hostages. Otherwise, we'll have to go forward militarily to free those hostages, as we've just uh, discussed. Um, but at the moment, there's no, there's no real deal on the table that, uh, that would see imminent release of hostages. Yeah.
All right, Avi Hyman, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, Turkey steps up airstrikes against Kurdish groups in Syria and Iraq after the death of 12 of its troops. More on the bombing of U.S. allies instrumental in expelling ISIS from the region. And thousands of protesters gathered in Serbia's capital to protest an election held earlier this month. We have details of the chaos in Belgrade. As we close out 2023, we take a look at some of the top stories from earlier this year, from riots in Brazil to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Stay tuned to hear the recap. Good to have you back. Turkey stepped up its airstrikes against Kurdish groups in Syria and northern Iraq over the weekend. The country's defense ministry says it's in retaliation for the deaths of 12 Turkish soldiers in Iraq. The ministry says at least 26 Kurdish soldiers had been neutralized in airstrikes yesterday. In Turkish military terms, neutralized means surrendered, captured or killed. Turkish officials blame the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or PKK, for the 12 soldiers' deaths. It says the airstrikes were directed at affiliated Kurdish groups. Turkey and the U.S. both consider the PKK a terrorist group, but disagree on the status of the Kurdish groups in Syria. That's because Kurdish forces were instrumental in defeating ISIS in Syria and are allied with the U.S. in their fight against terrorism in the region. A spokesman for the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces says at least eight civilians were killed in the northeast Syria strike, including two women. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says a dozen were also wounded. According to the observatory, Turkey has killed 94 people in, clo in close to 130 strikes in northeast Syria this year. The Syrian Kurdish-led authority says some of Turkey's airstrikes hit oil industry sites, health facilities and vital infrastructure, and that electricity production was cut by half on Saturday. The Kurdish administration is urging the United Nations to intervene. It warns that Turkish attacks could threaten the region's security and says one strike hit near a jail holding ISIS prisoners. And thousands of Serbians took to the streets of the capital, Belgrade, yesterday, protesting the results of an election that international monitors said was unfair. Police used pepper spray to disperse protesters after windows were broken at the entrance of Belgrade's town hall. Opposition parties accused police of using excessive force. Police say 38 people were detained and eight policemen injured. Protesters are demanding an inspection of voters' lists for snap parliamentary elections held last weekend. The elections saw the ruling Serbian Progressive Party hold power with over 46% of votes. That's according to the State Election Commission preliminary results. The EU and the U.S. urged Serbia to address concerns about its electoral process after the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe found procedural issues during an assessment. Going to China, China is warning that pieces of a rocket it launched will be impacting somewhere in the South China Sea today. China launched what it calls a Long March 5 rocket on December 15th. The rocket debris is expected to fall off the coast of China's island province of Hainan between 11 a.m. and noon local time. Launched six Long March 5 rockets since the first flight in 2016, Another rocket, named the Long March 5B, was used for launching China's Mars probe and modules for its space station. Previous launches of the Long March 5B have raised concerns over where the remnants might land. Debris fell on the Ivory Coast in 2020, damaging several buildings. And as we close out 2023, we take a look at some of the major events that happened at the start of the year. From rioting in Brazil to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, NTD's Daniel Monahan has the recap of the year's first quarter. Brazil was rocked by massive demonstrations and rioting in January. The trouble began a week after Luiz da Silva's presidential inauguration. Supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro invaded and defaced the country's Congress, presidential palace and Supreme Court on January 8th. Da Silva blamed Bolsonaro for inflaming his supporters after allegations about potential election fraud. 
Over to New Zealand, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern made a shock announcement on January 19th that she had no more in the tank to lead the country. And so today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. Ardern was the target of criticism for her COVID responses, which included strict lockdowns and vaccine mandates. Over 50,000 people were killed in Turkey and Syria in February after a powerful 7.8 magnitude quake struck before sunrise on February 6th. Dramatic scenes followed as rescue workers tried to save the countless people trapped in the thousands of collapsed buildings. And so let's work together in solidarity to assist all those hit by this disaster, many of whom were already in dire need of humanitarian aid. Over to the U.S. now, a suspected Chinese surveillance balloon spent a week flying over the United States and Canada before finally being shot down off the Atlantic coast. On Wednesday, when I was briefed on the balloon, I ordered the Pentagon to shoot it down. President Biden was criticized for his slow response to the crisis, and the incident aggravated already strained relations between Washington and Beijing. Tragedy struck Greece in February. Nearly 60 people were killed when a passenger train carrying mostly university students collided head-on with a cargo train. The Greek prime minister first blamed the crash on human error, but later admitted a lack of investment and problems of neglect in the railway. The death stirred public outrage, prompting anti-government protests. Around 10,000 demonstrators, including students and railway workers, gathered outside parliament to express grief and anger resulting in clashes with police. Over to Russia and Ukraine, the hard-fought battles for the city of Bakhmut played out before people's eyes. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the founder of Russia's Wagner mercenary group, published a video showing his fighters inside the city in early March. I am addressing the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky. Dear Volodymyr Zelensky, Wagner PMC units have practically surrounded Bakhmut. His announcement came after weeks of Moscow sending thousands of troops in waves to try to capture the eastern city and secure its first battlefield victory in more than half a year. Reminiscent of World War I, the battle for Bakhmut was fought from trenches, with the heavily mined battlefield described as a meat grinder by commanders on both sides. In the Middle East, tempers flared in Israel in March over judicial reform. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the overhaul was needed to restore balance between the branches of government. The plans led to escalating protests in March by a furious opposition who saw the reform as a threat to democracy. Clashes broke out at several Tel Aviv protests as police confronted demonstrators who repeatedly blocked highways and roads. Netanyahu later called a temporary halt to his judicial plans amid fears that Israel's worst national crisis in years could fracture his coalition or escalate into violence. Out of national responsibility, out of the will to prevent the rift in the nation, I have decided to suspend the second and third readings of the law in this term of the Knesset. Other big events included China's communist leader Xi Jinping's power grab. Xi secured a third five-year term on March 10th to tighten his grip to become the country's most powerful leader since Mao Zedong. Also in March, Silicon Valley Bank became the largest bank since the 2008 financial crisis to collapse when California regulators closed it on March 10th. The high-profile lender to the technology sector collapsed after depositors fled in large numbers, withdrawing $42 billion in 24 hours as higher interest rates caused the bank to wobble. The failure stranded billions in deposits, caused major market disruption, and heightened stress across the global banking sector. In France, hundreds of thousands marched against President Emmanuel Macron's pension reform, which raised the retirement age from 62 to 64. The city hall of the southwestern French city of Bordeaux was set ablaze in the evening on March 23rd as protests raged across France. Black-clad groups threw projectiles at police in Paris, who charged at them in confrontations on the fringes of the march in Paris. Back to the United States, 
where a heavily armed shooter killed three nine-year-olds and three adult staff members on March 27th. The shootings happened at a private Christian school in Nashville, Tennessee. Police killed the attacker, who was later identified as Audrey Elizabeth Hale, a 28-year-old woman who identified as a man. Hale was a former student at the school. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. What a year. Yeah, and don't forget, Donald Trump's first indictment was on March 25th That's of this right. year. Yeah, I would, right, so we started off the year, I'd say, with a lot of political nail biters, and then also economically, of course, right, with inflation, recession fears, everybody thought the economy was going to crash. Oh my gosh, yeah, after the pandemic, there were such dire predictions about the future of the economy, but it's not looking as bad as some people were saying. I mean, you know, interest rates are projected to come down. Right, and it's right. It seems like the fears are just starting to fade a little bit, which I think is is pretty, which is semi good news. I think I'm sure there must be something else good that happened in the beginning of the year, though. Right. Well, my birthday was on March 31st. Oh, there. <laughs> there we go. That's great news. Yeah. We're so glad to have you. Another year wiser. <laughs> All right, um, we're heading to break at this point. As we head into 2024, we take a look at how Americans are feeling about their finances. We sit down with the host of NTD Business to get you the details. Billionaire Elon Musk is facing a new lawsuit involving the alleged withholding of employee bonuses at his company X. We have the details of the lawsuit coming up. Good to have you back and joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to discuss how Americans feel about their finances in the upcoming new year. According to a survey from financial services company Bankrate, nearly two-thirds of Americans don't expect their personal finances to improve. Don, tell us more about what this survey discovered. Right. So, Chris, you know, it's interesting because uh, there's a lot of signs that shows that the U.S. economy actually is pretty resilient right now. You know, uh, Americans have been spending at a decent pace. Uh, wages have been uh, increasing faster than inflation and job market, you know, remains pretty strong as well. And prices for some items have decreased along with inflation. So, you know, despite some of these positive signs, it seems like a significant amount of Americans are not feeling so good about their wallets uh, for next year. Maybe there's a disconnect uh, with the official data and, uh, and the real world, but you know, that's probably a discussion for another time. But according to this bank rate survey, um, they asked this question, compared to 2023, do you think your personal finances uh, will improve in 2024 or stay the same or get worse? And the survey actually found that uh, two out of three Americans actually don't feel that their personal finances will improve uh, in the upcoming year. And that, of course, includes people who actually think their finances will get worse um, and some who uh, think that it's going to remain the same. Um, in fact, uh, more than a quarter actually think their finances will get significantly worse uh, in the next year. And it's interesting, too, that there's a generational difference when it comes to how they feel about their personal financial situation. Um, so except for baby boomer, boomers, all other generations feel more uh, positive than negative uh, when it comes to finances. Um, so overall, it seems like perhaps Americans outlook is a bit bleak right now. But, you know, it's still actually a tiny bit better uh, than last year. But, you know, let's hope that next year is even better, because according to the survey, um, a lot of people um, make uh, their financial goal uh, to uh, you know, pay down debt for the upcoming year, so we'll see. Right, so about Americans' confidence in their finances, over a quarter think that they will get significantly worse, so tell me more about why Americans are feeling so poorly about it. Well, uh, it should come as no surprise to everyone that uh, inflation is behind the biggest reason that uh, Americans are a bit pessimistic about their financial situation. So according to the survey, around 61% of Americans who say their finances won't improve, uh, they blamed inflation for that. Uh, prices uh, still no notably higher than two or three years ago, even though they're not increasing as much. And, you know, that's 
putting some financial pressure on a lot of families in the U.S. Um, so the next two biggest reasons are uh, stagnant uh, income. And some people actually blamed U.S. policies for their financial situation. Uh, but besides that, about one in five say debt is the reason why uh, personal finances will not improve in 2024. Um, so those are just some reasons why people think uh, why their, their financial situations won't be improving. But that's actually just one side of the coin because there are still more than a third of Americans who actually do think uh, their situations will improve next year. And the top reason for that is rising uh, incomes. Um, so, you know, we've seen that wages have been outpacing in inflation uh, for a couple months now. And another reason I want to point out uh, that a lot of us tend to overlook is that improving your spending habits can actually uh, help a ton when it comes to your financial situation. So, you know, that's things like reviewing past uh, spending and then using that as a guide to uh, make a budget for the upcoming year. I mean, that probably is a good idea. I mean, you can take a look at uh, how you're spending and you know, what's being allocated to fixed expenses and what's mm -hmm. being allocated to expendable income. Um, you know, I think everyone should review their budgets for next year. And, you know, some might be actually surprised to just how much they can save and better their financial situation. All right, Don, holiday finances might be down, like you're saying, but how was holiday travel this weekend? It was supposed to be pretty busy. Yeah, so in terms of holiday travel, conditions were mostly nice this year for travelers flying ahead of uh, and on Christmas, but some disruptions again plagued those flying with Southwest Airlines. For millions of flyers, Christmas weekend travel was relatively smooth here. Only 157 flights in and out of the U.S. were canceled. Around 2,100 were delayed as of late Monday, and this is according to uh, data website FlightAware. And for this holiday season, airlines prepared for massive waves of travelers by hiring thousands of pilots, flight attendants, and other staff. Last year, the Southwest debacle stranded over 2 million people. And this Saturday and Sunday, Southwest canceled over 400 flights and delayed over 2,600. This is, again, according to FlightAware data. Uh, Southwest spokesperson uh, blamed the issues on dense fog in Chicago that prevented planes from landing. But a full recovery is expected by today. Hmm, sounds good. Yeah, I remember you told us yesterday a little bit about all the uh, investments that were made. Sounds like it worked out pretty well. So we want to switch topics here for a moment. Tell us what happened at X. What's going on with Elon Musk? Yeah, a lot of talk there uh, because a federal judge ruled that X must face a lawsuit after staff accused the company of failing to pay bonuses promised to them. The judge denied X's motion to dismiss the case and X is accused of failing to pay the bonuses after Elon Musk's 2022 acquisition. The suit seeks class action status for former and current ex-employees. A federal judge in California ruled that the case against X was plausible and allowed it to go forward. Uh, in this motion to dismiss, X argued the case should be heard in Texas, but the judge said California law applies here. All right, thank you so much, Don. Thank you. Thank you. A real life home alone situation on a flight to Fort Myers, Florida. Find out what happened when an unaccompanied child ended up on the wrong flight during a trip to grandma's house. Dessert fans will love seeing iconic French buildings reimagined as gourmet treats. Savor every minute when we come back. Good morning and welcome back. We have a real life home alone situation during a flight to Florida. Spirit Airlines made a mistake this holiday, leaving a family furious. A six-year-old child was heading to Fort Myers, Florida to visit his grandmother, but ended up in Orlando instead. It was only discovered when the grandmother received a call from the child himself to let her know he was in the wrong place. The unaccompanied boy was then entrusted to the care of airline staff. Spirit Airlines apologized for the situation, but no explanation has yet been given. The grandmother told Wink News they offered a reimbursement, but she says she just wants some answers. 
scary situation and the classic beauty of Parisian landmarks and famous cuisine make the City of Light one of the world's most popular destinations. These local French Yule log desserts are a mouth-watering combination of beauty and rich flavor. Let's take a look. Paris is the second most visited city in the world. Its landmarks are famous worldwide, and French cooking has influenced many cultures' cuisines. Parisian landmarks look as appealing as ever this holiday season, with various restaurants and stores offering Yule logs in the shape of famous Paris buildings. This delicious-looking dessert looks like the Paris Opera. We are once again right next to the opera. It's one of our signature desserts at the restaurant. So actually, what is opera? It's layers of biscuit on top of chocolate and coffee. Chocolate lovers might love this dessert in the shape of the iconic Paris restaurant Fouquet's. It has over two pounds of chocolate. Toute la structure. The whole structure, the whole structure, but really everything, is edible. We have about a kilo of chocolate between the pavement, the awning, the building, and in fact, it's something that people will be able to take home after the meal. This Yule log for ice cream lovers pays tribute to the iconic dome of the Sacre Coeur Basilica. Christmas, Paris, and top-notch traditional French desserts. The three of the girls were, are Lebanese, but they've lived their whole lives in France, uh, in Paris exactly, so they've wanted uh, somehow to uh, pay tribute to the city that welcomed them into for all these years, and they grew here. The combination is both beautiful and delicious. Just another reason to visit Paris, if you need one. That's incredible. How much work must go into something like that? I can't even imagine, but I'd love to eat it. <laughs> yes. I'm even looking at it. I don't know. I really have my reservations and just cutting it. It looks so precious. Anyway, all right. We uh, have to head to a short break, but we'll be back in one minute. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Kelly Wright. We thank you for joining us and watching America's Hope here on NTD News. Bottom line is, I know you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. But let's give you some good news in the midst of the bad news. Watch us nightly right here on NTD News for a full dose of America's hope. Good morning and welcome to NTD News. I'm Chris Beers filling in for Kevin Hogan. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. The U.S. sends a Christmas Day message to Iran-backed terrorists in the Middle East. More on airstrikes ordered by President Biden targeting the Hezbollah brigades in Iraq. Turkey steps up airstrikes against Kurdish groups in Syria and Iraq after the death of 12 of its troops. More on the bombing of U.S. allies instrumental in removing ISIS from the region. New York City police arrest pro-Palestinian protesters for scuffling with NYPD officers and Christmas carolers in Lower Manhattan face disruption from a free Palestine convoy. Police send out units to the homes of two House Republicans on Christmas Day. A response to fake emergency calls to the lawmakers' private addresses. A winter storm is moving swiftly through the Midwest and plains, bringing heavy snow, freezing rain, and powerful winds. Travel conditions will be hazardous this busy holiday week. We have more on the weather. And we take a look at Bryant Park's Winter Village in New York City and all the amazing products vendors have to offer. Stay tuned to see more. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Chris Beers filling in for Kevin today. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, December 26th. In today's top news, President Biden ordered airstrikes against Iran-backed terrorist groups in Iraq last night. The White House says it was in retaliation to a drone attack on a U.S. base. The Pentagon says three U.S. service members were injured. One is in critical condition. U.S. Central Command says it targeted three sites used by Khatib, Hezbollah and uh, affiliated terrorist groups. The terrorist organization is also known as the Hezbollah Brigades. It fought against coalition forces in the Iraq war. The U.S. says it struck back less than 13 hours after the attack on the base in northern Iraq. CENTCOM says the precision strikes likely killed a number of terrorists. 
Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin says the strikes were ordered in response to a series of attacks against the U.S. in both Syria and Iraq. Austin said while the U.S. does not seek to escalate conflict in the region, it will not hesitate to take action to protect its troops and interests. Austin called this airstrikes necessary and proportionate. And Turkey stepped up its airstrikes against Kurdish groups in Syria and northern Iraq over the weekend. The country's defense ministry says it's in retaliation for the deaths of 12 Kurd Turkish soldiers in Iraq, I should say. The ministry says at least 26 Kurdish soldiers had been neutralized in airstrikes yesterday. In Turkish military terms, neutralized means surrendered, captured or killed. Turkish officials blame the Kurdistan Workers' Party or PKK for the 12 soldiers' deaths. It says the airstrikes were directed at affiliated Kurdish groups. Turkey and the U.S. both consider the PKK a terrorist group, but disagree on the status of the Kurdish groups in Syria. That's because Kurdish forces were instrumental in defeating ISIS in Syria and are allied with the U.S. in their fight against terrorism in the region. A spokesman for the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces says at least eight civilians were killed in the northeast Syria strikes, including two women. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights says a dozen were also wounded. According to the observatory, Turkey has killed 94 people in close to 130 strikes in northeast Syria this year. The Syrian Kurdish-led authority says some of Turkey's airstrikes hit oil industry sites, health facilities and vital infrastructure, and that electricity production was cut by half on Saturday. The Kurdish administration is urging the United Nations to intervene. It warns that Turkish attacks could threaten the region's security and says one strike hit near a jail holding ISIS prisoners. The world is connected through the internet and that connection plays a major role in the digital front of modern wars. That's right. I asked John Spencer, the chair of urban warfare studies at the Modern War Institute at West Point, about how the connections between conflicts impact the way wars are fought today. It really ripples across everything that, you know, really from the ancient warfare to now, everything that, you know, even the fighting where Hamas is actually watching Israel media and reporting on what the other side is doing. So it actually impacts the fighting, but it actually impacts the psychology of every individual soldier because it's listening to what the world is saying about their actions. Because in, in war, war is politics. So we're all watching and criticizing both sides. So it's really fascinating, like the veil between society or the world in war is gone. Like we can watch in live feeds. I can watch live cameras uh, right now of war going on either in Ukraine or in Israel. And of course, you are an expert in uh, urban warfare, so I want to touch on that as well. Um, what do the rules of urban warfare tell us about what can be done to protect civilian lives in such a concentrated area? And are there new standards or possibilities um, with the levels of communication and the connectedness here? Yeah, so there actually is, so there's some real uniqueness there. Urban warfare is, I say it's the hardest type of warfare in the world to do, and not necessarily just because of the three-dimensional aspects of an underground city or, you know, skyscrapers or all of that, but it's the fact that the world is watching and there are civilians unlike any other environment. Civilians are, unfortunately, the main casualties of wars. 90% of the modern wars are civilian casualties, not the two militaries fighting. And that's sad, and every one of them is a travesty. But this is a reality of why does Hamas want the battles to fight in the urban areas? Why didn't it set up defenses outside of the urban areas? Or why didn't it build bomb shelters for civilians in it? It's because Hamas needs civilian casualties to achieve its goals. And it can complicate these wars. And that's why, you know, why I've been studying it for over a decade is because war is continually to moving into the cities for a long list of reasons, like the fact that the enemy who gets there first can use the urban train to defend, but also can get the international community to tell you, hey, you got to stop. I don't care. There's too many civilian deaths. So it's a, real, it, it's a real test of the Western way of war, almost a liberal dilemma. Like the alternative is just let Hamas control and do these, these bad things. It's really um, a crisis I, right. on many right. levels. Well, 
yet, so it seems like the U.S., especially Biden and Secretary Blinken, they seem to think that Israel is not doing all they can. So is there, with all this technology, is there something more that can be achieved? I don't know if there's more, but there's definitely um, continuing to use um, that metric of civilian harm as a primary determination of actions. Now, where the U.S. says that we're very concerned, and they should be, and they are very strong on you need to continue implementing these things, the dropping the flyers, the making the phone calls, to establish uh, windows of time when there is no bombs falling so civilians can get out even months after they've been asked to get out. So absolutely, there's more that can be done, or I would just say that continuing to do them and continuing to put that as the highest priority, mm. I, I would want my, the U.S. administration to continue to um, say those things and to tell Israel those things, because war is politics. If you lose the global, the, the court of public opinion, the global court of public opinion, then you could lose a war. Well, thank you very much for your time today to provide all this context. Um, John Spencer, I really appreciate it today. Thank you. And several pro-Palestinian demonstrators were arrested in New York City last night after clashing with police. An NYPD spokesperson says several individuals were taken into custody Monday and that one officer sustained minor injuries. Eyewitness video shows protesters in Manhattan pushing police officers during their calls for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Christmas carolers in Lower Manhattan also reported some harassment. Protesters driving around Washington Square Park honking horns and playing loud music. The carolers also say demonstrators opposed them by gathering on the sidewalk, chanting loudly. One caroler says although it was disruptive, it only motivated the group to sing louder. He says Christmas is about turning the negative into a positive. The pro-Palestine caravan made multiple stops in the tri-state area over the weekend. One Instagram post from a supporter was captioned, no celebration till liberation. When we come back, we take a look at Bryant Park's Winter Village in New York City and all the amazing products there vendors have to offer. Stay tuned to see more. Good to have you back. A powerful winter storm is sweeping across the plains and the upper Midwest, bringing heavy snow, freezing rain, and strong winds. Blizzard conditions with gusts, gusts of up to 75 miles per hour are expected today. The storm will significantly impact travel throughout the region and is expected to persist throughout the day. Residents are advised to avoid travel if possible and to be prepared with survival kits in case of stranding. Please stay safe out there if you're driving today. New York City has a lot to offer this year when it comes to holiday activities. So I took a visit to Bryant Park's Winter Village recently to take a look at all the amazing things the vendors have to offer. So if you're in New York City over the holidays, there's one place you really shouldn't miss, which is the Bryant Park Winter Village where we are right now. This is now open until January 2nd and there is more than 180 shops here. So let's take a look at some of the highlights. One of the first things that will catch your eye is, of course, the 17,000 foot ice skating rink. And the best thing is, it's free. But I'd argue, besides the ice skating rink, the main things to do here is to eat and to shop. It's actually my favorite place in the city, even in the summer. It's just, there's everything here. Yeah. No, no, every come every December. The shops, the candle shop, Fifth of Madison, the best candles in the whole country. Yeah. There's a called bonfire. It smells like you're sitting around the fire. Breakfast. We have breakfast. With who? With Santa. With Santa at Macy's Herald Square. And now we're doing a little Christmas shopping. There's some shopping. We got some ornaments. And what else did you buy? Um, earrings. Earrings and a bracelet, right? And what are you most excited about here today? Um, I'm going to go ice skating. Ice skating? <laughs> <laughs> 
she wanted to come to New York during Christmas and we're friends, so I was like, let's go. Anything food-wise that you guys want to recommend or? We haven't tried any. We ate before we came here, um, but she liked this cheese curd stand and then I saw some empanadas that seemed really delicious. But cheese curd, what is it called? Do you know? Do you remember? Uh, curd? Curd, curd is the word. Curd. Yeah, curd is the word. Another highlight, of course, the Bryant Park's 90-year-old 55-foot Christmas tree. I love the tree. It's beautiful. That's that's the point, the tree. Yes. Yeah, I would say, like, just the whole spirit of Christmas and, you know, being able to walk around, see people and, you know, seeing the shops and, the, you know, the tree, obviously. I mean, it, it's a whole good vibe. You know, it's good. Yeah. And I hear a lot about the hot chocolate. That's what I'm looking for. They said one with the special flavors. And they also mentioned the Philly cheesecake. Cheese, no, Philly oh, cheese. Philly cheesesteak, yeah. Philly cheesesteak sandwiches. They only serve 20 a day. So you have to form a whole line for that. I'm looking for that also. So hopefully we'll get one. We love the hot chocolate here. Uh, Max Brenner is awesome. The restaurant itself, I forget where it's at, but it's, it's honestly awesome. We definitely recommend it. It's definitely one of our favorites. Is there anything else? Because I'm going to make my tour later on too. Is there anything you'd recommend uh, apart from that? This is where we stop. This is our favorite thing. <laughs> this so. is one of our favorite places to be, honestly. And that was all I needed to hear. But before we got ourselves that hot chocolate, we needed something to eat. So these are the two things I was looking for today. Joey Bats Cafe has the best uh, Portuguese egg tarts, pastéis de nata. And I have traveled long distances for that in the cold. So I'm excited to see this one today. And then, of course, the baked cheese house, where there is going to be the raclette cheese melted on the baguette so that's all the hype this year Joey Bats Cafe describes it as a warm creme brulee wrapped in a flaky croissant and I couldn't have described that better but on to the next item on our menu at the baked cheese house it was this toasted baguette with cured ham and of course topped with the highlight of the shop, the Swiss cheese. This is a wheel of raclette cheese that was melting on the machine until a bit brown on top to then drape it onto the sandwich. Delicious. To top it off, there were spring onions, baby gherkins and Dijon. Of the names mentioned especially for hot chocolate was Max Brenner so obviously we should try this one I've heard it quite a couple of times there is also a little bit of a line forming so it's quite hot though the consistency is almost like melted chocolate that's really good but of course there is much more to do than to eat With all these small businesses that are represented here, many visitors come to just stroll around and look at the unique products they sell. And of course, all of them have a lot of Christmas gift potential. So this is all called Luminite, and it's a semi-precious stone. It's about 150 million years old. It comes from a quarry out in the Continental Divide area. For example, all of these lines are naturally formed um, from water evaporating from the stones. And it really depends on the boulder that you're harvesting as well. How do you source these stones? Where do you, where do you get them from? So um, there's a woman named Red, and she has a group of about seven people who go out in this quarry and they mine it. Everything here is made with vintage watch parts from all over the world, turned into fine jewelry right here in New York by our owner, Damaris Galliano. How do you get your hands on them? Uh, we contact the companies of origin, stationed all over the world, of course. We've got some from here in New York, we've got some from Germany, Switzerland, all over. Here on the right side of our booth is our Alice in Wonderland collection. Very, very popular. And what's more is that most of the businesses I've spoken with are small, local businesses that are being supported with each purchase. So is Damaris Galliano. We've got a place in Union Square, we've got a place here, we've got a place in Chelsea Market. 
and another eye-catching small business, Kalsang Pottery. When we first got a booth here, we got it through one of the Urban Space and uh, Bank of America sponsors one um, small business spotlight, one booth where they sponsor a new upcoming business for two weeks and we get that free of rent. But it's just my husband and I. All the products are handmade, uh, hand thrown on the potter's wheel by my husband. How long does it take to make something like that? So the actual making of the form on the wheel is just a few minutes and my husband's a well, experienced potter so he makes things very fast, he can make things in a few minutes but then the, it's a whole process. We have to dry it for some days and then after drying we have to trim it and after trimming we have to well fire it two times and both the firings are like 12 hours each so the whole process takes weeks. So who won this year's Small Business Spotlight? One of them is Louise Goods. Everything is, is handmade in New York City. We're sourcing the leather from uh, very high quality like locations and it's all coming from uh, one single source from Italy. The, the art of handcrafted leather good is like very rare. Uh, I would say what Beck's friends that are, that are also in the industry look at her as like a lost art. Uh, for it because not many people do it. A lot, a lot of people, because of the, the time that goes into having to do hand-sewn leather, it just takes so much longer. He says although it is much faster and profitable to make those with machines, they value the quality of hand-sewn leather more. So 10 out of 10 recommend even though we got caught in the rain. Evelyn Lee, NTD News. Wow, that food looked amazing in the beginning there. Yeah, it was pretty good. I have to say, I don't even know. I can't decide, but everything was so good. But I do have to say the raclette was, there was a line, pretty long line too, and I tried it, and I do understand why. Mm. Yeah, you had me at Portuguese egg tart. That's right. They actually have a couple more um, locations, I think, around the city, Manhattan, I think. So, yeah, if you can actually find them around mm. here all year round, I think it's pretty good. I would recommend that for sure. <laughs> yeah, it was like this sort of like melting Have you goodness. been? Yeah, I was there just last weekend at night. Mm. It's like a whole other like magical level at night. Right. Winter Village at night must be so nice. I have to say, though, for me personally, I think I was glad to go there. If anybody is planning to go still, go early. As the time went by, I did feel like the, it started to fill up. The crowds came. And even when it started to rain, you know, it took a while for people to just kind of disperse. It was quite, yeah, there were, I was surprised at how many people were there when it started raining still. Yeah, they're serious. People are serious about having yes. their Christmas fun. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Fun. I mean, it was pretty fun and I'd say it was worth it. And I got caught in the rain pretty well. Mm, <laughs> All yeah. right. Um, we're going to end the show right here on this note. Um, we'll keep you updated, of course, with the latest. Stay tuned for Entity News today at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Chris Beers.